Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources mentioned in the episode will be available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcasting apps. It's somewhat annoying, but it's a fact of the podcasting ecosystem that getting good ratings increases our visibility on the apps, which helps us build our audience, which lets us continue to get the great guests that we have on the show. So please, when you're done listening today, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And maybe, if you're so moved, even write a review. Thanks. Today's guest is Max Borders. He was on the show once before. What was the name of that book we talked about last time? That would have been The Social Singularity. The Social Singularity. Quite interesting episode. Max is back with a new book, After Collapse, The End of America and the Rebirth of Her Ideals. Before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about Max. He's a futurist, a theorist, a published author and an entrepreneur. He's the founder and executive director of Social Evolution, a nonprofit organization dedicated to liberating humanity through innovation. He's also the co-founder of the Future Frontiers event and just all around interesting guy who I enjoy talking to. So it's great to have you back. Oh, it's always my pleasure. Max was on EP76 and the title was indeed The Social Singularity. So after collapse, the end of America. So collapse, what are you talking about here? Well, I'm talking about a lot of things. Collapse is a framing device, but it is also a multifaceted truth. And I spent pretty much the first half of the book showing the ways in which the American experiment is breaking down. But one in particular, and this is what people tend to focus on, it's the first thing that comes to to their minds, is, is some sort of financial collapse. And Certainly, this is a part of the thesis, the collapse thesis that is comprises um, part one. Um, but it's also th- th- there is more to it than just the financial aspects or the problem of sovereign debt, the problem of personal debt, this, that sort of stuff. I, I do think we're headed for a financial collapse into the future, if not some sort of Japanese-style economic malaise, something more like a souffle where <laughs> where everything just suddenly goes, bam. I'm not here to say which it'll be or what it'll look like, but to be prepared for any eventuality where our quality of life diminishes because of this accelerated debt spending and so on. But collapse is taking on other dimensions too. Um, and I spend seven chapters in the, in the first half of the book talking about these different dimensions. Yeah, just to make it clear, you go into some detail on that you are not talking about climate-driven collapse here or a comet hitting the earth or anything like that. These are what I call in my taxonomy of collapse scenarios, endogenous collapse scenarios, where the system itself starts to decay and collapse in various ways. Yeah, these are human systems collapse yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, basically, the system itself breaks down, not necessarily due to an external shock. And just for fun, you talk quite a bit about the debt, particularly early in the book. So I looked it up on the debt clock. I think it's called something like U.S. Debt Clock. It's a great website that actually shows the debt 
clicking up like the speedometer on a car. And as of an hour ago, our U.S. debt was $27.9 trillion. We're talking real money there. And that's compared to our nominal GDP of $22 trillion. So we're now above the known danger zone of 100% of GDP. Yeah, at least in conventional thinking, that could be dangerous. But as you know, I think, Max, I've always said, you know, that debt is less dangerous than it looks because we don't have to repay it. You know, the scenarios you give about us, you know, staggering into, you know, being burdened by the fact that, you know, our interest rates were to go back to even 3% or say if they went back to 5%, which is the traditional Fed funding average rate, the interest on the debt alone would be bigger than the total receipts from the income tax. And that would, of course, be disastrous. But this is the thing I like to remind people. Money is not wealth. Money is a signaling system for the coordination of production, distribution, consumption, and investment. And we can change our monetary system around at will. Fractional reserve banking of the sort we have managed by central bankers did not come down from Mount Sinai with Moses, right? This was something that was a whole series of frozen accidents. I like to point back to the founding of the Bank of England in 1694, and then there was various other iterations. There was the founding of the Federal Reserve right before World War One. There was going off the gold standard in 71, a whole series of frozen accidents. And we can change all that. We can take the debt and just say, goodbye, we're not paying it back, or If we want to be morally clean about it, we can say, all right, U.S. dollars, we're phasing them out. We authorize everybody to issue all the U.S. dollars they want. Print them out on your HP printer and just sign them. Pay off all your debts with money you generate yourself. And oh, by the way, we're going to start a new monetary system, and it's going to be called something else, and it'll start on October 1st, and off we go. It sounds kind of crazy, but there's actually an interesting historic precedent that shows that would work. And that was Austria, Hungary, and Germany in the early 20s. In the aftermath of World War I and a bunch of bad decisions made by the governments, they entered into an amazingly hyperinflationary period where literally it took a wheelbarrow full of large note currency to buy a single loaf of bread. The whole world was going crazy. And it wiped out all debt, basically, because in those days there was no such thing as variable rate debt. It was all fixed rate, so it all disappeared. Also, all the banking deposits disappeared for the same reason. And yet, when they reissued a new currency completely separate from the old currency, and the economy started back up in a week, and within a month, it was going great guns. So it's real important when we think about these failure modes to realize that the factories, the farms, the trucks, the cars our skills, they're all still there. Our monetary stuff and our financial stuff is only a system for coordinating their activity. It's not real and we shouldn't worship it. I think that's real important when we start talking about these financial collapse scenarios. Now, of course, it's going to take somebody with some visionary thinking to be able to make these kinds of rapid moves at the time. And it's certainly possible that the morons we have in charge won't do it and we'll just sink into a Japanese or worse style. But we don't have to let it. If we get ourselves mentally prepared, we can just ditch all that baggage of the past and restart in a week. Well, you know, that's much of of what I argue in the second part of the book in you know, what really gives it the title after collapse is what What would we do when the human system breaks down? What are the circumstances under which we could realize or instantiate a new system that is better, more anti-fragile? I certainly wouldn't want to start over 
with the system similar to what we have now, I think that would be a mistake. And I think someone with a view to a much more anti-fragile set of protocols might be the kind of wizard or mastermind that you, I guess, are imagining who would architect this new system. But it could also be a kind of an evolved state of affairs. We already have different uh, alternatives to uh, central banking that are starting to emerge in the cryptocurrency space. I know you're skeptical of these, but the thing about it is there is an ecosystem of these emerging and they're in competition right now. We could very well see that ecosystem develop where different properties compete in real time with different other properties till we get a kind of an more or less equilibrating state that starts to emerge over time. We don't know, of course, but the thing we do want to look out for is repeating the mistakes of the past. And of course, it's really hard to imagine wanting to uh, you know, walk around with wheelbarrows full of cash as they do in Argentina or in, in 20s uh, um, Germany and Austria. So yes, we want to avoid that. And some sort of, I don't know if you would want to call it a great government debt jubilee or what, but if that is the way to minimize collapse, it is certainly worth considering. The, the system we have now, I think there is a point of mathematical certainty beyond which is too far to go. And that system, whatever it is, either needs to be waiting in the wings or we need to be prepared for evolutionary processes for a bottom-up set of solutions to emerge and take hold. Maybe a bit of both, right? We have an interim standby. Now, it's interesting. My views of the cryptocurrency world are changing as some new projects start coming out, even though I'm still amazed at the price for Bitcoin. I still ain't buying none. Sorry. I do have some investments in some of the other altcoins that have done quite well. Probably time to start taking some profits. But some of the third generation projects like Cardano are actually quite interesting. You know, this one no longer has the ridiculous waste of energy through mining. They have finally figured out how to actually be cryptologically secure with proof of stake rather than you know, proof of work, which gets rid of my biggest objection to Bitcoin. And Cardano also gets around the ridiculous bottleneck in Ethereum, where essentially all the smart contracts in the world are running through you know, the equivalent of one Commodore 64 and much, much, much more throughput. Still not quite optimal, but a lot better. So I would you know, look at Cardano as one project as a potential basis for you know, an evolutionary bootstrap recovery. Holochain has some really good ideas there. They're not as far along in actually getting the work done. So yeah, I love that. I love the team. I know you've had uh, Art on your show, uh, the Holochain uh, primary developer of that system. He is a fantastic mind. And I think some of the stirrings I've heard is that the, it's just that their team is is reconstituting itself. And once that happens, if you're looking for a long play of interesting technology, Holo is Holo Chain is one of them. Yep. There's a lot worth keeping an eye on out in, in that part of the world as a way to enable one form of recovery or another from the traps that we get into. But as you point out, you don't just talk about financial collapse. You also talk about other whole series of other collapses. You mentioned our friend, at least my friend, I don't know if you know him, Eric Weinstein, and what he calls the suppression system of the distributed information suppression complex or DISC, right? You also talk about the blue church and, you know, how our collective sense making is starting to break down. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. 
You also mentioned a little bit about game A versus game B. Why don't you talk a little bit about your take on that? Yeah, I think it's interesting because what I've always found, and I realize, by the way, I am speaking to one of the godfathers of the game A, game B trope, metaphor, whatever you want to call it. So I want to stand humbly before you, Jim Rutt, in saying that it's because of you and, and Brett Weinstein that I, I'm i standing here today having this conversation and have it in the book. You guys are a big influence on me. One of the things I've found in in thinking about games A and B as a sort of a, a way of thinking in the abstract about social arrangements is the manner in which we get there, which you've done a great job of, of pointing out, probably in some of your episodes, but certainly in your writings. But also, what does it mean to be game A? What constitutes a game A system? What constitutes a game B system? And it's on this point that I find that many in the community, some of whom I agree with, some of whom I do not, have maybe some disagreement. I find it sometimes to be a little bit of, a, of an ideological Rorschach instead of just a, a way of describing the systems in systems terms. So let me give you a little bit of example. You get sometimes people talking about game A in terms of a, being a system of, of profit and loss, and that that's somehow something that you would want to get away from, or that game B is always going to be about putting everything into the commons, where the commons is commonly controlled property, for example, land or whatever you like. It could be digital commons. And I think these two things are different and deserve to be treated differently conceptually. In any case, the game A and game B trope, I think, is useful to a point. But I wanted to, in the book, really describe what I think is, at least as a sketch, is a useful way of looking at games A and B and their transition. And mine might be a little bit different from other people's. So, for example, I wouldn't completely do away with private property as an institution, uh, as some would, and I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea of a commons and the management of the commons in an Eleanor Ostrom kind of sense, but I wouldn't want to completely do away with private property. It's really about, in, in my view, allowing institutions to emerge that mitigate externalities and mitigate what folks like Daniel Schmachtenberger call advantage taking. And that, I think, is where I align with the rest of the group. And I want to look more closely at advantage taking as a mechanism for transition. So that's a loosey-goosey way of my describing it here. But um, I encourage folks to take a, a, a deeper look at my way of setting it out in the book. Yeah, indeed. And it's interesting. There, you know, Game B is a big tent. There is no doctrine of game B. It's sort of a way of approaching things. And I'm with you, actually, in some of these things. People say there should be no private property. Nah, I don't think so. And then there are certainly people who think that we must oppose competition at all times, right? I say, that's not very realistic. I mean, heck, even putting this podcast out, I'm competing for people's ears, right? How one could have a world without competition just doesn't make any sense to me. I find much more interesting the distinction originally made by Jordan Hall, at least within the Game B context, 
of thinking about the rivalrous and the non-rivalrous somewhat differently. You know, a rivalrous good is something like a ham sandwich. Either you eat it or I eat it, right? You know, there's by nature competition. Who gets the ham sandwich, right? On the other hand, there are goods like my podcast or like a piece of music, which are inherently non-rivalrous. The cost to reproduce each unit is extremely small. And without artificial bottlenecks around intellectual property and the corporate ownership and such, humanity's net welfare could easily be improved by letting anyone who wants a non-rivalrous good to have a copy of it. Now, there's a problem with how you fund that. And we've got some ideas on anti-rivalrous innovator funds, which essentially you know, fund non-rivalrous creation based on a formula, et cetera. So I think the simplistic game B that you, know, that you were kind of putting up as a straw man to distinguish yourself from is one I would distinguish myself from too, that we have to be, you know, realistic about reality and, you know, it's not going to be as pristine as some people might like to think. Yeah. And it's really, you know, I will say to that point, you know, it's really difficult to steal man game A and game B. And the only way to do that, I think, is to put forward your best estimate of what, what games A and B look like. And that, that I tried to do. I don't want to be unfair to the group in general, but only to individuals who have tried to make it look more like their ideological Rorschach than someone else's. And in that, I think, you know, it goes too far. One of the, one of the early problems I found was this equivocation on the word rivalry, where you had in one sense, one person using the concept of rivalry as competition and saying it's an unalloyed bad. And then in another context, they were using rivalry to talk about economic goods as being non-rivalrous, non-excludable, rivalrous, excludable, and so on. So you're absolutely right there. And we develop institutions, hopefully, in the Eleanor Ostrom sense that will allow uh, us to mitigate advantage taking or the meditations on Moloch problem that was set out by Scott Alexander, which I think is also somewhat problematic. uh, But we can talk about that in a little while. All told, I love the game A, game B, idea and what my I hope my contribution to it is is that and this maybe you know people are going to throw tomatoes at me because this is where my old libertarianism comes out a little bit but we, we begin to try to look at institutions that rely too heavily on uh, institutionalized violence versus institutions that rely on good incentives as two mechanisms for transition from game A to game B, which is slowly but surely getting to less uh, advantage taking through violence. Now, those aren't the only way mechanisms for the game A to game B transition, but it's certainly a place that we need to look harder at, I think. Yeah, and I think it's a nice contribution. And you know, people in the game B space, I'd recommend you take a look, see what Max has to say. So moving on a little bit, one of your next ideas, and I think this is an interesting and important one, is that you say that society is not a machine and that you think a biological metaphor is better. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting that you say that because just the other day I saw this uh, Eric Beinhocker article where he referenced the idea from uh, David Sloan Wilson, I think, where they they say that society should look more like a garden. And I, and I was horrified by that as well. But let me just take the contrast that you're mentioning now, which is the contrast between the machine metaphor for society and a biological metaphor. When we think about a machine, let's take the difference between a 747, which is 
complicated. Okay. And I'm, I'm doing some defining of my terms here just to make this pretty clear. A, seven, a 747 is a complicated instrument, but the cause and effect relationships in that instrument or that in the device are knowable, at least in principle, to anyone. And so we call that complicated in contrast with something that is complex. A complex system, we don't always and are not always able, and as you well know, Jim, because of your experience with Santa Fe Institute, we're not always able to see or limb or understand otherwise the complex set of relationships among dynamic agents in a complex system. So the Great Barrier Reef or the Amazon rainforest is a different sort of animal than a 747. The problem with so much of economics and expertise these days, at least for the macro economy and society, is to think of and treat the economy as if it were a 747, as if they really and truly understand the nature of the causal relationships in it as you would be able to say the fuselage and how it connects up with the whatever part in the engine. Um, But that's not at all how it goes. In fact, we need to start to think of the economy and the socio-economy as more being more like the Amazon rainforest or the Great Barrier Reef. And I, I truly believe that we will, that people who operate with this metaphor as a lens will have a lot more humility when trying to think about how to intercede in the economy during times of emergency or whatever. Uh, and that's, so that's sort of the, the, the opening idea. And I think it paves the way to other ideas. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. People who listen to the podcast know that I often warn that one of my biggest takeaways from studying complexity is epistemic humility or modesty. That when you think that you can understand a high order complex system enough to predict with a high level of surety what will happen if you do some major tweak to it, I suspect you're going to find yourself very wrong. (laughs) Exactly. Another related idea that you bring forth early in the book is high minds and high modernism. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were getting at there? Well, really, I think uh, this connects very well to the idea of the machine metaphor. The high mind is one who fancies him or herself as capable of the administrative ordering of society or the economy without too many or even any negative or perverse effects. In other words, the the unintended consequences of being a high mind, which is to fancy that you can administratively order society, is to create an invisible graveyard of things that never get created in the process of trying to do too much planning or to to do too much to uh, organize society along some dimension. And also, in order to take effect, and I, I really appeal to the work of James C. Scott, the Yale political scientist in this regard, who coined the term high modernism in his book, Seeing Like a State. And I, I just run with that. The high mind is someone who employs high modernism, this administrative ordering of society, and fails to see the perverse unintended consequences of this kind of policy, one of which requires this immense and enormous uh, use of the violent apparatus of the state to to carry it out. 
So it's not just that there are all these unintended consequences, but in order to order society in such a way, you have to really be able to uh, engage in a certain degree of suppression. And that can manifest itself in certain degrees of autocracy that we would find uncomfortable after a certain point as good liberals. Now, I don't want to assume that all your listeners are good liberals, but I'm assuming at some le- big tent level, Jim, that you and I are, and and that is the space for conversation is a broad liberalism that I think we're losing in this country. And that's, that's really uh, um, another way that I think we're breaking down. And we can talk about that in just a little bit. Yeah, I got a section later on about liberalism and the Enlightenment and God damn it, what are we doing? All right, because I'm with you. I consider myself an old school liberal universalist, essentially, and resist the attacks from both left and right on liberal universalism. Amen. And you and I on this, we agree. We don't agree about a lot of things, but this is one where I think the big tent the liberal cosmopolitan sensibility is one we share and one we, we have to fight tooth and nail for. Because right now we're sitting in between two camps, two extremist camps, one with Molotov cocktails, the other with t- tiki torches. And our liberalism and our liberal order is a dried out detritus that is going to go up in flames if we're not careful. We've got to be good liberals again and we've got to be proud about it. And you have some interesting ideas about that. Well, we'll get to soon. Now, another idea that we're sort of setting the stage here is you talk about the distinction between scientism and science. Why don't you lay that one on us? Yeah, it's this one is really quite rich and deep, but I can give you a couple of examples to help make it more concrete. You know, science really is a method of understanding the world and really being open to the idea that in some sense, you could be wrong and looking for evidence that disqualifies your truth claim. I like to appeal to the old Popperian model of falsification. It doesn't always work, but in general, I think this is more or less the way the Republic of Science proceeds. But it does proceed with some toehold in the conception of truth, okay? Scientism really is about imagining that you can take that you can use scientific tropes or thinking and and somehow through a methodology that is reserved for the sciences and apply it to some domain that is probably best left to the philosophers. Uh, so for example, trying to develop a moral order through the sort of the apparatus of, of state violence is really um, it sounds libertarian again, but it is really a methodology that depends on scientism. This this dream that you can um, use science to to create society as you would create, say, the seven forty seven, and it's in scientism and that we get so many of these terrible articles these days that uh, is an affront to real collective intelligence stuff like science says you know, studies show, you know, this scientism as a mind virus to to think that you're on the side of science when you might not be uh, and that you're employing the scientific method in in other areas of socioeconomic self-organization, that this is a can be a dangerous mix. And this goes back to the old, you know, the work of F.A. Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize in 1971 for this kind of thinking, 
I mean, it's pretty much boils down to this knowledge is distributed among millions of billions of people around the globe. And when we start to think of, of knowledge as being centralized, we have to, we have to abstract and click out orders of magnitude that we miss resolution. We miss complexity and we miss granularity. So we can't possibly know have enough knowledge to administratively order society from this godlike vantage point. But scientism says you can, as long as you use science to do so. Well, and that what that amounts to more often than not is social sciences that are com- completely bankrupt or at least too far away from the action. It treats people as if they were plot points. It lobotomizes agents in the system. It treats the dynamic as if it were static. And in all of these circumstances, you lose the benefits of emergent complexity. Yeah, I like that way better. Now, back to our previous topic. One of the reasons my knee jerked a little bit when I started reading this in the book is I also often hear these charges of scientism from postmodernists, right, who essentially deny the validity of science as a differentiated way of knowing as compared to, say, witch doctors or shit people just make up. And I'm you know, very anti that as well. On the other hand, here's what the framing I like on this is, to my mind, what you're really talking about is that for science to be truly useful, particularly the social sciences where we're dealing with inherently complex adaptive systems, is that your science has got to include complexity thinking. To try to think reductively very far about the social sciences is a dead end, or to try to project from, as you say, single small number of data points to you know, how are a billion people going to operate in the aggregate is a fool's errand. So, you know, amending social science in particular to sort of have a mandatory complexity science appendix to it goes, to my mind, a long way to avoiding the bad attractor of thinking you know more than you actually do. Indeed, indeed. And I, you know, this, this humility with respect to what we know and can know, you know, I've learned a lot from people like uh, we, we talked about in the last episode, both Robin Hanson and Philip Tetlock, both of whom have been on your show, as I understand it, right? Tetlock, goddammit, never returned my emails. If you're out there, return my emails. I've invited you to be on the show. <laughs> Tetlock, this is a great show. You need to get on here and talk about f- super forecasting and humility with respect to what we can predict and know. I, you'd be a great, you'd be great on this show. So come on. Yeah, I, I've learned a lot from these guys, and their epistemic humility makes them really great at prediction and forecast, and yet they also know when to shut the hell up when they don't know something, and that I admire uh, and certainly benefit from. And yet, I'm here without any kind of economics degree, depending on the knowledge and information inputs from other people with the hopes of persuading the readers that a collapse is imminent. So I am guilty in some sense of being a hedgehog, but I do caution the reader to admire the fox, if that makes sense. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Yeah, one of the examples you give are, you know, some scientismist looking at things are the Neo-Malthusians. Now it's interesting, the very first thing I ever wrote for publication was a refutation of the Club of Rome 
report back in like 1974 or something like that, where, you know, the Club of Rome, as you recall, were saying that people will be starving by the hundreds of millions by 1985 and, you know, the world will end by 2000 and all this. And I basically, my, my analysis, which was actually published in a libertarian little student rag newspaper, I pointed out essentially the three things you did, institutions, innovation, and incentives that, hey, you're making some linear assumptions here about a world that's inherently nonlinear. And we have a transfinite space to evolve into of learning how to do things better. And as it turned out, I was right and they were wrong. Here I was, a you know, college junior versus the army of the big brains. And they basically just took linear extrapolations and didn't realize that complex adaptive systems will adapt. That's right. I mean, and and good good for you. You, I don't know if this predates uh, Julian Simon, but he's the one who was the foremost exponent in unpacking the idea that neo-Malthusians are probably wrong and will probably continue to be wrong, given the right institutional substrate. And that's that's an important point. Malthus is correct when you have bad institutions. For example, if you have no institution of property or no institutions of locally managed Ostrom commons, you are going to get a depletion or overconsumption. But there is a kind of panic out there right now about resources. The most recent in my mind, I think, was in the peak oil uh, conversation around 2006, 2007. That, of course, never materialized. And you get this kind of over and over again, this idea that resources are going to run out and we're going to be these sort of roving zombies fighting over the last scraps of something. And of course, in Scott Alexander's Meditations on Moloch, he points to this with his lake example. Thankfully, Eleanor Ostrom comes along and says, hey, if you if you, you can develop locally managed commons where as long as it's local enough and people know each other, they have a, an incentive to develop institutions to manage commons long term, and they will. And she gives plenty of examples as a kind of world anthropologist of this. But then, of course, there's private property rights. And people sometimes in the Game B community think that private property rights are an unalloyed bad. And, you know, one of the things, one of the benefits of of it is if you have property, you have a greater incentive to be a good steward of it. Not in every case, but certainly better than bureaucratically managed commons, as we saw in the Eastern Bloc countries in the 80s and 90s, that were woeful in this regard. But also in just we can take a look at all the resources around the world that have more or less good institutional substrate where prices, property, uh, and there's another P that helps govern this, will r- result in the self-equilibration process called substitution, okay? Uh, so let me give you an example. In, in um, the 80s and 90s, there, were, were, there was a copper shortage because people wanted to run electricity and other and, and, and energy through copper lines. So that was one big problem. And there are other uses for copper and there's competition for the use of copper. So the price of copper went up. But when a price of copper goes up to a certain point, the entrepreneur in, in, in a good set of institutions knows to look for alternative uses, knows to not only to figure out ways to eliminate waste, but to look for substitutes and to innovate. And one of the innovations we saw, of course, was the fiber optic line. Now, of course, we have Elon Musk launching satellites into orbit. 
So even if there were, you know, shortages of glass because the fiber optic lines use silicone, um, that we would continue to migrate to other communication mechanisms, even if we never used copper again in our communication devices. So this process, um, we have to have some measure of faith, generalized faith in what Julian Simon called the uh, ultimate resource, which is the human mind. But that human mind can only do well in an institutional matrix that rewards stewardship and rewards innovation. Yeah, on the other hand, and this is where I probably push back a little bit, I think we both agree that subsidiarity is an important concept. I like the quote subsidiarity as that we push decision-making to the level at which it can deal with the actual problem. So, you know, if it's trash on the street, there's no reason that the federal government should be involved with trash on the street in Stanton, Virginia. But some of the issues that we confront, and particularly climate change, global warming, does seem to require serious social coordination and some institutions and incentives at a level that we've never had before. And so there's a challenge there that a reflexive do it all locally, while good for a lot of things, may not be good for solving coordination problems and defending a true global commons. Yeah. And and look, I, I think so, so the problem, the, the reason that you want to have a local commons management simply uh, is because that large scale management of the commons almost always fails. And I hate that. I hate this fact. It would be wonderful if we could have a, a more robust commons management system at the level of the globe. And we had armies of angels staffing the UN that would be able to get everybody in line and mitigate the problem. Um, that's just not the case. And the reason I want to be realistic about that is just assuming that global warming is uh, going to be a, a serious problem in the future uh, as, it, as it is now, then we need to think about some mechanisms for dealing with the problem that don't depend on a universalist management of the commons, thinking of the climate as a commons. So for example, I'm not completely hostile to the idea of a carbon tax. A carbon tax, as long as it can be enforced to some appreciable degree and not gamed, and I think that it is the least gameable system, uh, cap and trade is probably second place, but a carbon tax would be a, a way to internalize the externalities at the most local feasible level without telling you how and what. It's the sort of the same as the, the, I think that one of the biggest mistakes for the environment was uh, was the um, Nixon passed the legislation in 1971, Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. These were terrible in the sense that they tried to prescribe what you had to do to limit emissions. And we have 1970s and 80s technology still going today because that what, is what complies with the law. And of course, you get special interests forming around these structures when they're frozen in amber. But a carbon tax, at least a carbon tax, wouldn't do that. So if you're going to mitigate climate change and it's, it's relatively simple to enforce a, a carbon tax, then maybe a revenue neutral carbon tax is the way to go to mitigate climate, cha climate change. There are problems with, with carbon taxes, obviously. 
But um, I think this is probably your best bet and perhaps investment in a more diverse energy portfolio that includes something like nuclear and that, that's high impact and maybe capital intensive uh, for the near future. So I'm not going to be doctrinaire about, about those things, but merely to point out to say, what are the systems that allow people to j- adjust locally and at the periphery rather than ones that try to exert command and control structures? Those are going to fail. Yeah, or at least they're going to be way suboptimal. It's going to cost vastly more than it should. I mean, for instance, I'm very skeptical of the so-called Green New Deal, which is very prescriptive in how it wants to do things. In fact, the Bernie Sanders version actually calls for government socialism, for government to own the solar fields. And as we all know, human innovation, it may turn out that solar is not the answer in 20 years. Maybe something else is. And to lock in now, we're going to build this and the government's going to own it. Oops, it's going to have sunk costs here that it's then going to need to defend against other innovation is a horribly bad idea. You know, I've been saying for years now that the 100% refundable carbon tax is as close to the silver bullet as we're going to find. And by that, I say 100% refundable, I mean that all the taxes that are collected are refunded per capita, minus whatever small administrative fee, 5% it might cause. And people say, well, wait a minute, that won't change any behavior. I go, yes, it will. Because at the point of actually making a decision to spend you know, $3 on a gallon of gas or $3 on a six pack of beer, the implicit tax in the gasoline from the carbon tax will push you towards the beer, even though if you're an average consumer at the end of the month, you'll get your check back and all will be well at the macro level. So it's an amazingly clean and powerful way to start to mold our behavior. And particularly if we set it and set a schedule for it to rise over 20 years, started at a moderate level, maybe the equivalent of $50 a ton of carbon and aim to reach $200, $250 per ton of carbon in 20 years, that provides a remarkable attractor to human innovation and organization to solve the problem, whichever the best way to solve it is. If it's solar farms, that's great. If it's distributed solar, that's wonderful too. If it's the new generation four nuclear plants that Bill Gates is investing heavily in, that's wonderful as well, or some combination depending on where, when, and how. Yeah. Well, and you know what's interesting, the, the, a lot of people don't know that the United States, though it is a, a massive emitter of carbon dioxide and indeed of methane, that the United States has turned the corner, pulled back in its emissions growth, and that it is actually getting better and better. That the env- environmental Kuznets curve, which is a, a, a rendering of how much effluent or pollutant or whatever you like through through time, is going down. We've hit our peak and we're beginning to go down. There is a fabulous book out on this. McAfee is the the economist's name from MIT who's showing this on nearly every dimension. We're being better environmental stewards just due to waste elimination and improved technology that there is a positive arms race for in, in the economy because nobody really wants to waste. Nobody wants to consume what they don't have to. Nobody wants to waste what they don't have to, unless they can get away with it. And so what we're finding is dramatic, even reductions in environmental pollutants and problems already that in in my mind are a good sign. And I understand that that goes against the narrative of hysterics and um, hyperventilation, but 
it is one piece of a larger puzzle that includes mitigation strategies, science. I'm just not as worried about climate change as a lot of people. I'm worried about the collapse of our human systems. And that really is the punchline of the book in part one. Indeed. Let's talk about another topic you mentioned as a sort of a way forward, mycelial networks. You know, you say they're not centrally planned, they're nature's peer-to-peer processors, et cetera. That's certainly very game B. In fact, the punchline of that paragraph was it's the network protocols we have to design. This is something that Jordan Hall and I talk about a lot, which is that, you know, the best thinking we need to do is on our network protocols and then let the networks wire themselves up. Yeah, and this 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 is an extension of of the example we were just talking about, perhaps with with climate change. But it also, I think, it really does hold across the board. We have this. Uh, I'll, I'll go to an example again because I think listeners will appreciate coming down from abstraction land a little bit. People love uh, Americans just absolutely fell in love with the idea of putting a man on the moon, and. This is the sort of this sort of linear thinking that, you know, that you could do this. It was so at the time, this whiz bang technology where in the 1960s, like we could really beat the Russians and put someone on the moon and we did it. And this is really the, you know, the the shining laurels of technocracy is getting a man to the moon. But again, this is the best that the high minds have been able to come up with. And it is very simple. It is a complicated system, but it is not complex. What we have done is taken this kind of thinking, this kind of technocratic thinking that we can do anything with enough largesse and enough planning, we can put a man on the moon. Well, if we can put a man on the moon, we can fix the economy, fix this social problem, fix that social problem through largesse and central planning. And my hope is to, in some sense, disabuse people of this notion. We need to come back from that precipice, especially if there is a national emergency, because more of the same will be catastrophic. The rollout of the uh, vaccine for the pandemic has been just one tiny example of something that could have been handled so much more effectively and easily through other means. What do I mean by these mycelial networks? Well, the mycelium, I think is what it's called, is a underground network of plants and fungi that are able to communicate with each other about the circumstances of the environment. And so they're able to coordinate in in such a way the plants uh, through these signaling mechanisms in a network that allow them to survive and thrive despite changes in circumstances. And this is about naturally evolved network protocols that we're only beginning to understand in the 21st century, the the mycelial network layer of of the ecosystem. And it is just, its insights are profound. People who are into complexity science already are into it. They already love it. They know about slime molds. They know about self-organizing systems. This metaphor, I contrast with what is called the moonshot mentality. And with all apologies to Peter Diamandis and Elon Musk, that shit's got to go. That message has got to go. This moonshot language, I think, is destructive to some degree, Jim, frankly, because what Diamandis is saying is that we we should all try to be like Elon Musk and have 10x thinking on everything. 
and it's sexy and it's fun. And we all see Elon launching rockets and, and, and developing really cool cars. But what we don't see is the opportunity cost of this kind of thinking when applied to scale. And as you and, and uh, Jordan Hall point out, as you've told me that you've pointed out, is that the development of network protocols is far more important because it allows the agents within a system to respond locally and in real time to exigent circumstances. That's the change we need to get to in terms of game B systems uh, before we start thinking about some entrepreneur, some visionary like Elon Musk or some president like Kennedy who says we're going to do this through through largesse and planning when it's not going to work. Uh, it's not likely to work. It's likely to collapse and waste a bunch of money. What we really need to be thinking is how agents in a system respond in pro-social ways to each other and allow that to grow in mycelial fashion. That's that's the contrast I'm trying to bring. Yeah, and that's a, a more evolutionary approach, small steps. But I would turn that around and say that probably the right optimal answer is some mix of the two. For instance, one of the giant complicated projects humanity has committed itself to undertake is the development of fusion power. This is a long-term project. It's going to cost probably hundreds of billions of dollars, and it might fail. And yet, if it succeeds, it'll change everything. And so it strikes me that a global level society or our species ought to be thinking in a portfolio theory where we put some small percentage of our bets on these big, complicated projects, these moonshots. And if enough of them win, the benefits that come from them are astounding. You know, we've all heard about the number of spinoffs from the Apollo missions, though you did joke about it. What about the spinoffs from the Russian space program? Probably not as good, you know, borscht in a tube or something, right? But I'm not so convinced that some number of moonshots doesn't belong in our human species portfolio. But on the other side of it, most of our learning is going to be decentralized and evolutionary. And so, you know, sort of trying to get a balance between the two is perhaps a better way to think about that. Well, and 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 that may may well be true. I am uh, a little more hostile than perhaps you would be to the likes of Mazzucato, um, who is an economist out of the UK. I think she's actually an American, uh, Italian-American or Ita- American-Italian or both, but she actually works in the UK and does most of her research there. She is really big on this idea of massive government investment in R&D. And all I would say about this is, is as follows. Let's consider the invisible graveyard of projects that don't ever get tried because you've put too many resources into these big buckets. Now, there's a reason, there may be an optimum or reasonable sum of these kinds of experiments that we can, that, and when I say we, I mean authorities, can work on with tax dollars. As long as we leave most of the capital and most of the resources for smaller experiments that can be taken to scale, and we can have these workshops or these laboratories of experimentation all over the place, even if you are able to scale these through uh, public means, that might might work. But we just want not to circumvent or attempt to steamroll over these shoots of experimentation. That's really the, the, the thing I want to, to bring across in the book. And so I, I try to, uh, you know, Jim and I, like, I really think that, that Elon Musk is wonderful. 
He's a genius. The guy's super cool. Everybody loves him. I get it. But one thing that I want pe- to people to pull back from is the idea that he is an amazing entrepreneur. Um, it, he is an amazing entrepreneur. But one of the things that is a marker of Elon is that he depends to a very great degree on subsidy, on uh, you know tax benefits to certain groups. He takes tremendous largesse. He saves NASA money for sure in the things that he does. And yet he still is a big old crony capitalist. The, the entrepreneurs I would hope that people would admire, admire more than Elon Musk are those who aren't such big crony capitalists. I still think he's cool as hell. I still think he's doing interesting things. But I do want people to get a little bit of perspective on this and, and not taking so many subsidies and, and being the richest guy in the world uh, because there is this cult around him on the one hand from the standpoint of investors and because on the other side, he's taking money or uh, arranging regulatory environment to benefit his companies. So that's, that's sort of um, my take on Elon, not trying to make enemies with your audience, in, <laughs> however. You know, but I'll turn that one around a little bit. You know, as you pointed out earlier, you know, Elon with his internet, was it called Skylink Network? I, we just signed up for it here, hope to get it by the end of the year. We have shitty, shitty internet here deep in the mountains of Virginia. And having, you know, 100 megabits, holy moly, right? At my farm, we have seven megabits on a good day with the wind up here at my office, 25. In some sense, the tax subsidies, the enticements to build out SpaceX, is what led us to, you know, the Starlink system. So catalytic money from the government may not be a bad thing. I mean, again, it has to be spent intelligently. And I've spent a lot of time talking with people at the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, et cetera, on how we can be more intelligent and how we allocate this social capital. But I'm afraid that in a world as big as the one we're in, we're going to need some of that society level capital to entice the entrepreneurs to move forward. And, you know, Elon Musk is a perfect example. And look, I don't want to be completely doctrinaire about it. And I'm not in the book. Again, the reminder to people is, um, is you don't know what doesn't get created with the same dollar. In other words, the invisible graveyard of possibility builds up the more you spend on these projects. And it's very seldom that we see the failed projects. So I, I see what you mean, but we always have to think about, look, as, as, as game A as it may sound, we, we do continue to have to think about uh, opportunity costs. And sometimes opportunity costs are so invisible because they amount to innovations that never get created because re- resources were diverted somewhere else. And that's important to point out. I do think that we, all of us, myself included, intend to focus on the positive results of social investment. And yet we also know that an awful lot of it's wasted. And it's important to keep that in mind. Let's next move on to kind of a double conversation here. You talk a bit about David Sloan Wilson, who people in the game B world often point to as an example of good thinking and his Evonomics idea. You don't seem to like it too much. And then at the same time, you lay out in considerable detail what you take to be a new view or an updated version of the invisible hand. Maybe if you could compare and contrast David Sloan Wilson and what you think a better invisible hand might look like. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that my invisible hand looks uh, in more or less like the old invisible hand uh, of of Adam Smith, but applied to contexts that we don't often think of them being applied to, such as governance. And I'll get back that to that in a moment. But let me let me talk about why I don't really have a lot of. Uh, I don't want to say I have disrespect for Evonomics, but I think that a lot of what it sends out is the wrong message. What Evonomics does, in my view, is acknowledges a little bit of the problem, grudgingly acknowledges the problem of the machine metaphor, okay? But it still is a masquerading version of high modernism in, in my, from my perspective. And here's why. I think, do you remember the group, the Discovery Institute? And there was some debates back in the early 2000s about orthodox Darwinism versus the Discovery Institute, where they want to say, yeah, Darwin, Darwin's okay, but we think that there's this prime mover at the beginning that is this, this um, intelligent designer. All bullshit, in my opinion. Well, I I agree. And I think that the twin theories of evolution and emergence, for example, that come straight out of Stuart Kaufman, who is one of my favorite thinkers, is really uh, as close as we're going to get to describing our socioeconomy with respect to uh, and, and comparing it to our living systems on the planet. And so Evonomics really boils down to is analogous to intelligent design. And I think the, the idea that you can intercede with an invisible hand into a complex system and, and make these kinds of pro-social changes is going to reach its limits quickly. One of the things that we all know about complex systems is that small changes to initial conditions uh, result in macro effects that almost always we can't anticipate. And that if we try to use intelligent design thinking but balance that against evolutionary thinking, we're going to be in trouble. And this is where I think Wilson and others use the gardening metaphor for society and civilization, that it should be tended like a garden and that there are going to be these high modernist gardeners, these high minds who are going to do it. Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, I am an orthodox Darwinist in this regard. And so the way I see uh, economic systems is, look, there's got to be experimentation within the economy, and we, we've got to have mechanisms for trial and error and failure. The systems of profit and loss, revenue in excess of costs, are a good one that are time-tested. I don't think we want to jettison that in going to game B. What's more game B, however, is that we have some federalism, some subsidiarity that allows for more t- tweaking of economic systems. If you want to try your experiment, have it be far less system-wide and catastrophic, far more localized. And if you want to try some your whatever the thing du jour, whatever the, the idea du jour is, whether it's a universal basic income or a carbon tax or whatever, you start to see what the incentive system produces from that. But it's this, the meta system is not a monolith. So it's not, failure is not catastrophic and system-wide failure is localized. And so I believe we can develop markets in governance 
And that requires some kind of subsidiarity. And you and I can talk more about that if you like. We'll get to that in a little bit. But before we close up on David Sloan Wilson, he makes a very important point, which I don't think you fully give him credit for, which is that let's take something like the human body, right? The human body consists of trillions of cells, not only of our own cells, but also our microorganisms. But let's just start with our own cells. You know, long, long, long ago in our evolutionary history, those cells were independent, freestanding organisms. And yet they somehow came together to work in a symphony with feedback loops and protocols and very complicated metabolisms and signaling of all sorts, where they're able to work somewhat in competition with each other, trying to fill space, for instance, or whatever, but they don't do so in a destructive fashion and do it in a way that allows this emergent organism, ourselves, to exist for a long period of time in tolerable equilibrium. And one can think about that in complexity terms as downward causality. You know, the existence of the human implies certain things about how the lower level units need to react with each other. And then what has evolved over time is more and more efficacious communications protocols and transport protocols to make that happen. And in its pure form, that's a little over-visible handish for my taste. But in terms of thinking about the importance of flows and protocols, I think it's actually very inspirational for the Game B work that we're doing. I actually agree with you on that, except I would disagree with David Sloan Wilson about the level of description at which that is described, such a phenomenon is described. You and I spoke in your last episode, and, and I'm happy to bring it up again, about the organism, human beings being uh, an organism of, as far as we know, the highest complexity uh, in the universe that we're aware of. Now, we're probably being monitored by aliens right now, which is great. I just want to say hi to the aliens out there. Please don't eat me. But if humans are the high, you know, uh, as far as we know, the highest level of description, that is at the level of the organism. In my mind, the, met, the appropriate metaphor there, the comparative metaphor, is the firm. So we can have these hybrid systems that mix this network protocols. You know, we can apply systems like holacracy, and those holacracy can be scaled to some degree. And we don't know what that degree is. But we need to exercise humility in talking about scaling uh, systems. So if we're thinking about an organism like a human being, I think that is an appropriate metaphor for the firm. I would not say that that is an appropriate metaphor for the wider society. Society is not a body. Society is an ecosystem. And that's where I would push back against David Sloan Wilson while agreeing with him. And where you and I agree is that one of the most important places to start reforming, going from game A to game B, is the network protocols of organizations. That's one of the most important places we can start and if David Sloan Wilson agrees with that, then bless him. I think he would agree with that. But as you indicate, he would also be more prescriptive in certain ways that probably you and I would both disagree with. But I would say that he has some important insights as well. Let's actually, let's jump to that now and talk about the firm. I think one of the things that gives many of us pause about unbridled, invisible hand is the result, particularly in the modern world with reduced friction and positive network effects. Remember, you know, classic microeconomics actually assume negative scale effects. Things got more expensive the more you made of them beyond a certain point, and hence supply and demand crossed and firms were of limited size. But in our modern world, we are in a world of gigantism. 
you know, why in the world does there need to be one Walmart? And the reason is that they have a series of advantages, most of which are small, but in the aggregate add up to just enough at the margin to crush everybody else. And, you know, the one truism of economics is everything happens at the margin. And so we end up with Walmart that crushes everything in its sight and literally no one can compete with it. So maybe Amazon. So is there things that are fundamentally wrong with the invisible hand, particularly in its modern, low friction, increasing returns to scale business models that we need to think about? You know, my favorite is a gigantism tax. Literally put an explicit tax on the gross receipts of companies based on their size. And maybe it starts at 100 million. And by the time someone gets to 20 billion, which is a mighty big company, 20% of their revenue might go to the anti-gigantism tax. I can guarantee that if Walmart were subject to such a tax, it would break up into three or four store clusters really fast. So it strikes me this is one of the unforeseen resultant effects of late stage hyper financialized capitalism is the tendency to one big winner based on the reduction of friction and increasing returns to scale business models. Yeah, so you and I, we, we've talked about this before offline, and it's a really interesting conversation. Let me, uh, let me give you my best for talking about uh, the size of companies, okay? I don't see it as a, a, an issue of size or, or gigantism. I do think that if you marry the idea of gigantism with uh, rent-seeking, then yes, I agree. All right. So I would couple your notion of gigantism with crony cap with a crony capitalist uh, phenomenon. So there is one of my favorite thinkers is is actually not a philosopher or a sociologist or economist at all, but he's an engineering professor out of Duke named Adrian Bijan. And Adrian Bijan uh, describes a fundamental law, which I think he calls the fourth law of thermodynamics, which he calls the constructal law. And in the constructal law, he describes in nature this feature of vascularization. And I call it in the book, the law of flow. Well, if you have any kind of flow system that is working in vascular fashion, it is going to have uh, a portion that is the raging river portion. Let's look at, if you look anywhere in nature, you're going to have the Amazon and the Nile. Okay, but you're also going to have tributaries to these and the Amazon and the Nile are gigantic, right? Likewise, for other phenomena, you can you can uh, talk about uh, big, big websites like Google and Facebook that that are traffic hogs because the vascularization of the Internet was going to happen. This this scaling law uh, effect happens throughout nature and it tends to have an S curve. Uh, fashion in time. We're already seeing Facebook stop its growth. It's slowing its growth. And that's why it's starting to, to get, you know, to get cagey. Zuckerberg's getting cagey. But so, uh, you know, same thing with Amazon. It, it's going to have a scaling limit. The question is, from the standpoint of aesthetics, whether that scaling limit is um, if you like the gigantism or not. And I think an aesthetic view of it isn't the important question. The question for me is, is it creating customer value? Is it creating stakeholder value? Is it creating value for those who've invested in the company? Is it creating value in the value ecosystem it occupies? Just as the mahogany trees in the rainforest soak up all the water 
and a lot of the carbon dioxide in the forest, we see natural living systems follow this vascular pattern where you have few large and many small down to the tiny. Um, that is a process that living systems have that I would not want to disrupt except and unless the gigantism is, as Daniel Schmachtenberger would describe it, advantage-taking. If it's if it is somehow found a way to exploit people or planet in a way that is unacceptable and it is not paying for its externalities and it is not paying for its displaced costs, then absolutely. Then there m- should be an institutional mechanism for resolving that gigantism. But if it is creating value for, for stakeholders, I don't think size is, is, is an issue really. You know, we can then de- have a debate on whether or not you can tax the personal wealth of someone like Jeff Bezos after taking profits. How many yachts does the guy need? But that is, to me, a different matter. In fact, I don't even think you should tax corporations at all. They can grow as long as they want, as long as they're not displacing costs or somehow being predatory in their orientation. And that's sort of where you and I have a lot of contrast in our views, I think. Yeah, I think I'm still sticking with the fact that there's something big lost in the ecosystem when a Walmart utterly dominates a business that's not inherently a scale-based business. It's not building 777s. It's basically running a fucking store, right? And through a series of network effects and at the margin, small differences and corruption. You know, they're here in Stanton, they basically put the three local towns into a competition. Who wants the store, right? Who gives us the biggest tax abatement? And our town ended up giving them a 20-year tax abatement. And gigantism will lead to that. Well, I, I, I don't like that. It's cronyism. You know, you and I agree on that. Walmart shouldn't have any special privileges, especially if they're big. Anyway, let's move on. We're getting short on time here. We've got about 10 minutes left, unfortunately. You know, I'm only about a quarter of the way through my topic list here. This was an extremely interesting book, as I mentioned earlier. Let's move to one of the things you focus on late in the book. I'm afraid we're not even going to get to the solutions, which is kind of a shame. Maybe we'll have you. Why don't we do that? Why don't we get you back for a shorter episode on the solutions side? Because we're not going to get to the solutions. Uh, and so the last of the problems we're going to talk to is this kind of crazy breakdown of our world around wokeism, identity politics, postmodernist claptrap, and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yes. I, <laughs> I'm happy we got to squeeze this in, and I'm, and I'm even more delighted that you're going to have me back to talk about solutions at some point. But yes, let's talk about wokeism. You know, you basically talked a bit about it in a late chapter. I think it was called Breakdown of Discourse and Civil Order. And this is a radically anti-liberal. In fact, this is a good time to also lay out your idea of liberalism as the right way and the alternative to the illiberals of the right and the left. But then let's also talk specifically about the left forms of anti-liberalism, which I don't think get nearly enough credit for their anti-liberalism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think... One of the things that wokeism depends on is, is the following dynamic. There is no cost in wokeism to being wrong, to being inaccurate, or to, uh, or to speaking in equivocation and falsehood. Now, 
you might say, well, Max, this is, you know, postmodernism thoroughly, you know, disabuses us of such enlightenment notions as capital T truth and so on. But we do get inputs from the world. Yes, there is a lot about postmodernism that is is a good critique of the enlightenment. And I readily admit that and agree with it. But it goes too far. And when it becomes that critique turns into a mind virus where we're simply political utterances made without any regard to what the world actually looks like or the dynamics or phenomena in the world are, you get serious problems. And let me give you an example. And this may get me tomatoes thrown at, at people's screens or whatever they're listening to this on. But, but let, me, let me just give you an example. I am, as someone who leans in an anarchist direction, I am pretty darn hostile, and we've talked about this in the last episode, to, to police violence. I think there is uh, too much police violence in America, and I think it's an institutional problem. The problem, however, with the narrative around police violence uh, against innocents or against unarmed people is that it's racist, and it's all racist, it's all racism. Everything is fucking racism. If you have a narrative that everything is racism or everything is the oppressor versus the oppressed, and this is just a speech act in which you bring forth a false truth without any reference to statistics, reality, any other approximation of what's going on in the world, then what happens is that gets propagated and pollutes the information space uh, or the information ecology, as our Game B friends like to say. And we get this propagated narrative that everything and everyone is racist and racism lies around every corner or sexism or whatever ism you like that plays with this dynamic of oppressor oppressed. When there is no cost to being wrong with this and your messages gets propagated, what that does is creates a false reality and um, an almost cult-like following of people who are being slowly subsumed into a Borg of absolute falsehood. I'll give you a quick example and then I'll shut up. This notion, for example, that police violence affects mostly or only uh, people of color is simply false. When you consider the numbers uh, on other dimensions, such as the crime rate in Afri African-American communities, particularly with violent crime, it completely mitigates the narrative that this is all, always happening to black people. So you get what is called an availability cascade. And an availability cascade is a phenomenon uh, outlined by uh, Cass Sunstein, who's a really bright guy, that basically says if something happens and everybody pays attention to it, they tend to extrapolate or infer that this is a massive problem and that this particular instance was the tip of the iceberg. And on top of that availability cascade, you get this master narrative of racism everywhere. And suddenly you've got people who are just going, oh my God, what, what? I'm racist? Oh, I need to do the work? I need to read my D'Angelo? I don't, I don't, am I? I don't, you know, and, and, and what you get is this, this deference to this narrative that is causing mass guilt, inflaming what should not be problems. And it gets people's eye off the ball in terms of the real institutional problems of policing and the drug war in America. 
that is terrible, especially when it turns becomes a great and unending distraction from the real problems and real pathologies underlying our social problems. If we don't have any connection to the truth, or at least proxies of truth, we're dead in the water as a civilization. Here, here, and this woke shit really just got me definitely worked up like it does you. I'm currently involved in a series of online arguments with a bunch of Wokies, and this is a particular pod of smart Wokies, but nonetheless, they are incapable of actually even thinking about this issue. Because as you point out, when you look at the per-encounter basis, Fryer, the the black economist from Harvard, has shown that per-encounter, actually, black suspects are killed less often than white suspects. Exactly. The problem is, and that's in Houston, in the aggregate, they're almost exactly what you would predict as no racial bias in the killings. Now, there is other evidence that shows that other forms of police misconduct are skewed by race, but let's go with the empirical data. But the Wokies, first, they are suffering from an extreme inability to deal with this. I mean, the, the counterexamples they give have nothing to do with the argument even. They're just like throwing up their hands. Other ones I've talked to said, well, the data doesn't even really matter. It's the lived experience. And I like to tell them, well, for the average human, the lived experience is the earth is flat, right? If you're not going to appeal to data, what the heck kind of uh, world are you living in? And, you know, this deep postmodernist nonsense is just horrendously dangerous and bad. Well, you get this weird neo-segregationism, which I find appalling and racist in its own right, that the idea that white people, and it's the purview of whites to use reason and evidence and seek truth, and that for black people, that there's some sort of separate phenomenological or or epistemological matrix that they should and do function in, that the only answer to that, first of all, that's completely fucking wrong, but that the answer to that is that you, you use speech acts, political speech acts to create new realities. That's exactly what they're doing. And it's working because there's no specific costs to anyone being wrong. You know, this is why I'm, I'm struggling in the solutions part of the book to help us improve our collective intelligence, not just with the kind of discernment and patience and wait and see attitude that folks like Hall and Schmachtenberger practically beg us to use in these circumstances, but also systems, architecting new systems that somehow, some way will uh, incentivize truth tracking. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yep. And, you know, I had a really interesting episode with Jim Lindsay, who, along with his co-author, Helen Pluckrose, wrote, to my mind, the best book on all this called Cynical Theories, where he takes wokeism and takes it back to its roots with the Frankfurt School, Herbert Marcuse and those characters, and shows how it's literally a plotted attack on sense-making and on evidence and on empiricism and on the Enlightenment. And if people don't waken up, this may be your endogenous collapse scenario, where if we become addicted to making decisions irrespective of evidence, we're going to drive our civilization right off of a cliff. Amen. It's pretty crazy out there, no doubt about it. And these folks are vicious, right? They'll come right after you, even if you quote them chapter and verse of data, right? Uh, It's racist to quote data. (laughs) 
It's racist to do math. It's racist to have standardized tests. It's racist this, racist that. Everything is racist. If 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 you can't do anything without being accused of racism and it's just getting worse, then there's nothing you can do. And with the digital lynch mobs that we're all, not all of us, but many of us are appalled at, um, we're, we're even losing the people's, it makes me mad, but people tell me all the time, they're like, look, you know, it, it, these social media platforms who censor people, it's their, pri- it's their private property. They're, they're, it's their business. And, and as a good liberal, a good liberal who believes in private property and being able to you know, run your business as you see fit, I agree with them. But there is also a spirit, an enlightenment spirit of, of liberal inquiry where you tolerate other people's speech and you seek truth through the evidentiary process through the discovery process of scientific inquiry that depends to some degree on at least statistics, evidence, numbers, not just quote unquote liberal experience or what the poet Audre Lorde says. And she was steeped in that critical race theory, which is the tools of the master's house. Reason, evidence, and logic is the tools of the master's house. Yeah, if you want to hear a good refutation from black intellectuals, check out Shelby Steele, John McWhorter, and Glenn Lowry, who have been subject to all kinds of abuse for standing up for Enlightenment values. It's scary out there. It really is. And even Thomas Sowell. I would add Thomas Sowell to that. He, 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 he might be too right wing for some people, but on this particular issue, his econ brain is fantastic. Well, that's about all the time we have. Unfortunately, I got another call I have to jump on and we're already over our 90 minutes by a fair amount. So I'd like to wrap it up here and I'm serious, we should have you back soon to do the second part of this thing. We have to get to your solutions because I finished reading the book, we can do it real soon. So let's do that. So thank you, Max Borders, for an incredibly interesting conversation. Jim, as, as always, it's my pleasure. I so look forward to it every time. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.